What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. As we're thankful and giving, let's be encouraged to be the best version of ourselves for the new year. A person who overcame the dread and fear of an abusive childhood only to become a hospice nurse and a mother of two is our guest today, Angela Howard, author of Sin Child, a memoir. Welcome, Angela. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Diane. Thank you for having me. I'm going to give our listeners a bit of background first uh, in case they haven't read this riveting memoir, which I read all in one sitting. It's a real page-turner and for some heart-tugging reasons. Angela Howard is the first-time author of A Memoir Sin Child and the founder of PTSD ACED Foundation, Inc., Angela is a registered nurse and has worked in the medical field for the past 20 years. You hold a Bachelor of Science degree in nursing and certifications in lifestyle planning and medical case management. A Mississippi native, Angela Howard was given the pejorative label Sin Child by her Mennonite grandfather when she was born out of wedlock to his son and her mother. Howard suffered unimaginable abuse and neglect from her mother, her mother's 11 husbands with some exceptions, and some of her other relatives. This abuse came in the form of physical beatings, threats with a boa constrictor, rape, verbal and emotional abuse, and abandonment. Sin Child is a tumultuous ride through the drug and alcohol-ridden royal towns in the hills of northeast Mississippi, where Howard survived a childhood under too many roofs to describe, making her way in life through beauty pageants, numerous schools, and a job selling illegal beer and stolen cigarettes at a convenience store where drug deals happened in the back room. All of this before she turned 18. It was during her work as a nurse that she learned the connection between what she had experienced and PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, received the counseling and encouragement to heal herself and others. Angela, it's an incredible story. It must be kind of an out-of-body experience to hear it even now or to read your book. How is it to have your story in your hands and out there in the world? First of all, thank you for that wonderful introduction, Diane. And um, it is quite surreal uh, still. And COVID hasn't hasn't helped many things, so uh, we've been doing what we can. But it's been amazing to see how many people from all over and even uh, uh, Canada, um, all over the United States and Canada have reached out, uh, you know, with emails, how it's helped them and how they never knew about how ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, could affect them mentally and physically throughout their life. And that's the reason I wrote this book. When I was 34 years old, I had already worked as a psychiatric 
a psychiatric nurse at an inpatient facility for children. And I had no idea um, that adverse childhood experiences could cause PTSD. And I think a general consensus is that post-traumatic stress disorder comes from serving in the military or losing a limb, traumatic events such as that which obviously it does, mm-hmm. but it also comes from how we grow up and how we are treated as children between the ages of zero and 18. Mm-hmm. You know, I also think that most people think PTSD is episodic. It comes from a single event. But over time, the emotional neglect is even a more profound trauma for a child to try to absorb trauma being that which we can't process. Um, How do you process something like what you went through? Uh, But what I want to give listeners an idea of is this really important connection between ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and PTSD, and how it can manifest in different ways in the body. Can you let us in on your experience now physically and some of the adverse experiences experiences and effects that you're still having? I can. Actually, in 2019, I became increasingly fatigued and my concentration levels started to decline. Um, I was working as a nurse and I, I felt like I was starting to make some errors. I went to my psychologist, um, who I had not seen in several years, but she was the psychologist who finally diagnosed me with PTSD and gave me the tools to help me get better. And I felt like I had gotten tremendously better mentally, but my physical health took a decline, like I said, in 2019. I found out I had multiple autoimmune disorders in the summer of 2019. And in August of 2019, I actually suffered a stroke at the age of 41. So adverse childhood experiences, especially um, prolonged adverse childhood experiences, they, they disrupt the neurodevelopment in the body. So they rewire mm-hmm. as your system and your, your brain is wiring and growing as you age in those imperative years of 0 to 18. Everything's forming, and when you're when that formation is disrupted and constantly disrupted, it it creates your body to think differently. It, I'm sure everyone has heard of fight or flight syndrome, mm-hmm. and that fight or flight um, it's given to us to use in times of need to help protect us. Dr. Nadine Burke Harris says it well. She said it's like made for if you're hiking in the woods and having a great hike and a great day and you see a bear. And, you know, what do you do when you see that bear? Your hypothalamus kicks in and tells your pituitary to release hormones and then it releases adrenaline and cortisol and it gives you that strength to either flee, to either run away, or to fight that bear. But then it's meant Mm -hmm. to come right back down and stay down. And it, the, that HPA axis is not meant to be elevated constantly. And what happens mm-hmm. with adverse childhood experiences, especially the prolonged ones, 
it's like that bear is coming home every day or you're seeing that bear every day. So it disrupts all of your cognitive impairment. And the the disruptive um, amygdala, your emotion in your cortex, your emotional center, then becomes highly reactive, highly vigilant, can be hypervigilant even to the next blow, the next trauma, the next, you know, moment of fear of confronting a bear. I've also read in the fight or flight that the, and I would suggest maybe this is a later day response and the one you're having now with the book, um, which is an extremely important book for people to read, is the third alternative, which, if it's possible, to connect, because connection also helps ameliorate trauma. Um, and I know you know this because you've just mentioned that you've heard from people all around the country and, and through Canada. I wonder if you'd talk to us a bit about, I mean, the timing of you discovering your autoimmune deficiencies as a result of these childhood experiences, a direct translation from emotional life to physical life. This is what I think is so critical. That discovery occurred just before the pandemic and, you know, 2020. How has the pandemic worsened the situation for children who are experiencing trauma at home at the hands of family members? That's a very important question. Already, uh, this is a quote from Dr. Robert uh, Block, who was the former president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. He had said years ago, adverse childhood experiences are the single greatest unaddressed public health threat facing our nation today. Well, that was, Mm -hmm. like you said, pre-pandemic. The pandemic, there have been numerous factors that have affected um, childhood experiences. So children who are already having adverse childhood experiences, a lot of times um, school is a mainstay for these children. School was very important to me. I loved to go to school. Because at school, I knew I was going to get fed. I knew I was going to, you know, not be struck in the face at at any time by an adult. Um, I felt safe at school. It was a safe haven. So for many of these children, school had been a safe haven. Well, not only did their schooling become disrupted and they were stuck at home, parents were losing jobs which made mm-hmm. already abusive parents even even more abusive. You know, people, the you know, drinking went up, uh, alcohol abuse went up during the pandemic. So with everything, every adverse thing that went up with adults correlated directly down to the children that were at home with them. And of being course. isolated in that situation with absolutely no outside support during the pandemic, Um, not even the support of friends or being able to, you know, hang out with classmates or get out of the house for a little bit. Um, It really, studies have shown that hospitalization and ER visits from abuse have increased 20% since 2020, from 2020 until um, let's see, it was August of 2021. Hospitalizations and ER visits had increased 
And you, you know, you, you talk about um, ACES, which is, you know, an organization that you founded. Uh, does mm-hmm. ACES, uh, I'm sorry, not ACES, um, well, does the organization that you have founded, um, yes, has it um, offered a way of connecting, say, virtually for kids that, you know, have Internet access, or are there other resources? Has there been a way to respond, Angela? to talk to, to provide some kind of, um, you know, emotional, conversational sanctuary of just witnessing what a child is going through and offering them help as to how to deal with it. Um, is that something that's offered through your organization, or how do people connect with resources like that? Well, we have not offered that live so far, unfortunately. Uh, I've been spending time with uh, police enforcement firefighters, uh, school school administrators, school teachers, so that they can try to connect. Of course, we do have uh, a phone number for the foundation and a website that anyone can reach out to, and we, we respond uh, right away. But um, mm-hmm. we have not found a virtual way to do that. It seems like there's a lot of red tape, unfortunately, that you have to go through to get that out there. But... Um, Yes, we you know we do respond to emails, we do respond to phone calls, and it, it's been enlightening for me to be able to work with individuals like in law law enforcement because these these people have no clue. They go in and they right. they're arresting kids, and I live in Memphis, Tennessee. We have a very high rate of crime, and our crime is predominantly in the fourteen to seventeen year old category. Right. Um, and they they go in and then they see these kids doing something bad and they throw them in a juvenile detention center. And that's another big issue I have. When I was RN supervisor at the Psychiatric Facility for Children, I was there for over five years. Not one of these children were diagnosed with PTSD. Not one in my wow. entire career. I was going undiagnosed then as well. Yes. It was definitely going undiagnosed. I've probably served more than 1,500 children during my time there. I did not know I had PTSD at that time. I definitely didn't know. I didn't know about ACEs. I didn't know about PTSD, even though I had lived through it. Um, But these children were misdiagnosed and therefore mistreated. I spent five years thinking that I was doing the best I could possibly do for these children, but Looking back, we were actually being very detrimental. We were doing right the opposite. We were putting them in restraint. We were putting them in seclusion. We were giving them pharmacological interventions to, you know, calm them down and basically put them out. And mm-hmm. I just, you know, I've, I've thought so many times of the children I've served and uh, what I went through. And some of the children I served went through much worse. And I think, you know, goodness, they wonder why little Susie is, you know, fighting everyone and just tore up everything in her room and broke a window out. Well, you know, little Susie, they don't take into consideration. Little Susie may have been prostituted by her mother at the age of nine and 10. And, you know, right, mom shot and killed her dad right in front of her. Those were very traumatic events. And little Susie has a reason to be lashing out, it's not that she is, has 
bipolar or intermittent explosive disorder, she has PTSD. She does not know how right. to cope with what she has been through. And knowing how um, underdiagnosed that is, um, is what actually led me to write the book and to get the book out there. And through mm-hmm. the book, I, I never started to found a I never, I'm sorry, I never meant or planned to start a foundation, but after I wrote the book and saw the initial impact the book was having on people, I thought I need to take one more step. I've got to do one more thing to try to get it out there, what ACEs can actually do to you. And in the midst of all of that is when I learned of my own health issues. So it Mm -hmm. made it even more important to me. Absolutely. And you were always a helper. You were always a healer. It does come down to Dr. Heal Thyself first in some ways because of what you've been through, Angela, but it's extraordinary and amazingly important work to be a helper at the level that you are. We're going to need to take a commercial break. We are going to come back with Angela Howard, author of Sin Child, and we're going to talk about misdiagnosis and pharmacological solutions, quote-unquote, to phenomenon that are not being accurately described as PTSD or addressed at that level. We're also going to talk about what it's like to write the book and to have the experiences relived again, Angela. That's other, you know, important um, information for people to understand the storytelling process. But we're going to pause for a commercial break right now, and we'll be back in a moment with Angela Howard, author of Sin Child. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Angela Howard, the brave author of Sin Child. And we're talking about misdiagnosis of PTSD that occurs when a child has had ACEs, averse childhood experiences. They're often undetected, Angela. They're often undiscovered for a variety of reasons. Who is going to have that relationship with a child that they're going to feel safe enough to talk about this? Can a child even identify it sometimes because it's all they know in their world? Um, So many reasons why a child might be misdiagnosed. But I want to really focus on what the perils of that are. You yourself weren't correctly diagnosed until your mid-30s, your early 30s. 
What were some of the negative impacts that occurred before your correct diagnosis? What kind of things were you trying to to help yourself, uh, you know, emerge from this from this childhood? I had actually seen a couple of therapists, uh, psychologists on my own. I always I, I had a severe history of uh, night terrors. And I saw, okay, as I get older, these are going to go away. They're, you know, they're going to get less and less and less. They're going to go away. And the night terrors and the not being able to sleep constantly, as I aged, and they didn't go away, it made me feel like I was crazy. Uh, I don't know how else to say it except that. And when I was 34, I, I found I was talking to a friend, and I had never told my story to anyone. It's just a story that I'd kept within myself. Um, no one knew. And I finally, mm-hmm. you know, I started talking to a friend about it and some things that happened and in a joking way, actually. I was with a couple of my uh, girlfriends one night for dinner, and um, we were talking, and I said something making a joke, and they both teared up. And I thought, well, you know, goodness, what did I say? And they were like, that's that's not funny. And they said, did that really happen? And I said, yes. And so that made me realize that I had a little bit of a problem. And then I opened up to them a little more about things. And it was suggested that I see a psychologist. And I went to one who was recommended. And on the very first visit, at the end of the visit, she started pulling out paperwork on PTSD. And I thought, why is she... You know, did she hear me? Was she listening to me? And she starts handing me this paperwork. And especially as a nurse, you know, we like to think we know everything. Um, I said, I don't have PTSD. And she said, yes, you do. You have, you have severe PTSD. And I wanted to argue a little bit. And she pulled out a test and had me take the test. And I really bombed the test. And then she started, she gave me a workbook, assigned me a workbook, and assigned all of this. I went home, I processed it for a, a couple of weeks, and um, I went back because at first I thought, I'm not going back to her. This lady has no idea what she's talking about. But she did. And the more I worked through the book, the more I saw these things in myself. And um, from that point, I went to her for several years routinely. And um, she also was able to recommend me to a psychiatrist to place me on some anti-anxiety medication and medication Mm -hmm. to help me sleep. And just getting sleep, you know, made a huge difference in my life. Um, We talked through strategies to cut down on the nightmares. The main thing that she let me know, though, is that I was not crazy. There was a reason that all of this was happening to me. And there was a reason Mm -hmm. it wasn't going away. And the reason was I had not been properly diagnosed or treated. I had been diagnosed with anxiety, with depression, even with borderline personality disorder. And, you know, of course I had anxiety and depression, but it was because I had PTSD. And after I was diagnosed... It felt like, and and after probably about a year of therapy and me accepting that the things that happened to me and knowing that I have to face them again and relive them to be able to move on with my life, um, I felt like weight had been lifted from me. 
I literally mm-hmm. felt like a new person. Uh, it, it affected my parenting. I, I, I became a better parent. I became a better nurse. Mm-hmm. I became an advocate. And um, it, it, it really, I mean, made me, like I said, it, it was a 360 change. You were, you were, in effect, born as a new self. I mean, a kind of your energy came back. And all of that kind of shame of, of having had the experience as kids blame themselves for it. Um, and when you were younger and you had the night terrors, I think there was actually a, maybe a school psychologist who, who taught you to visualize, you know, a cool breeze is coming over my face. I am safe. And it was only by these affirmations that you could even sleep then. Uh, the tragedy yeah. in our culture is thinking that you're just going to get over it. Like you said, you're, you know, you probably saw it like we all tell ourselves to step in the past. But your body has a memory. Your cells, you have a cellular memory of these events. And I kept wondering throughout the book, um, if you were triggered, if you were triggered by the process of writing the book, was it therapeutic? Are you triggered when you're working with kids who go through similar experiences as yours? How does the triggering uh, aspect of it work in dealing with such sensitive material all the time, Angela? The triggering aspect has actually improved with writing the book. Um, during writing the book, um, I worked with a wonderful, um, gosh, and I'm blank. That, that's another thing I have is cognitive impairment uh, now after my stroke. So if I blank, everyone, please forgive me. But a story editor. Mm-hmm. I worked with a wonderful story editor, and, you know, I would write down the hard facts, and she would interview me, and then she brought out, how were you at, you know, you know here's what was happening. You're You're recognizing that, but... Tell me how you were feeling. What were your thoughts? What were your feelings? And how did you get over that? Or how did you make it through this particular night? She actually brought out um, a lot in me because I had never thought, how did I make it? All I knew is that Mm -hmm. every day I had to make it. And in my teenage years, there were several years where every day I woke up and I did not know where I was going to sleep that night. And I had school, right after school I had work, and then I had to know, to say, okay, where am I taking my bag tonight? Um, so every day I lived, I lived like that. I just, you know, that, that fight or flight was kicking in every single day just on those aspects. And um, it, it did during the book for a little while. But the triggering, since I've been able to talk about it more, see it more, um, I'm not my triggers have gotten a lot better. The trigger that has never gotten better um, is my fear of snakes. I was, uh, I lived in a home with a stepfather who had a boa constrictor as a pet and he was sexually abusive and mentally and physically abusive, but he would threaten me at the age, like ages six to eight. He would threaten me with this boa constrictor. He would hold me down over its cage and, feed it a rat and watch me eat it and tell me, you know, if you tell anyone or if if anything happens that I don't like, I will do the same thing to you. I will feed you to the snake. And 
my oh. fear of snakes. I, I I do better. Um, I had started when my girls were a little younger, my two daughters, uh, going by going to the zoo, and I made myself mm-hmm. going to the snake house. And I thought, okay, even if I can go in there for one minute and just say one minute, it, it's something. And I knew they were behind glass. It was controlled. No one was there to hurt me. And it started with that one minute. And the next visit, I'd be like, okay, I need to stay two minutes. And um, I found ways like that to cope with different triggers. That's just an example of, of that one. That that was mm-hmm. a major trigger. And with COVID, I haven't been to the zoo in a while. I used to go to the zoo, honestly, just to do that. I know that sounds so odd, but it, it, it really helped me. No, and now with COVID, I haven't been to the zoo in a while, and I catch myself if a commercial is on and a snake pops up, I, I flinch. I still have a visceral reaction to the sight of a snake. Absolutely. And the associations with it with you are so far worse than any that we have from just being turned off by reptiles um, because it's a, a signifier. It's, a, it's like a symbol also of the terror and the evil that this person, you know, was um, enacting on you. I also noticed in your just recounting earlier that you used humor to deflect uh, the pain uh, that you maybe didn't want to acknowledge in yourself. The most fascinating aspect of the book, I thought, and this is without giving spoilers away, because honestly, everyone should read this account. Clearly, even speaking with you, Angela Howard, you are an incredibly strong individual. You went to school. It was a sanctuary, but you became an excellent student. And even not knowing where you were going to sleep that night and all these other terrors and fears that you had to deal with, you became an like a, an A. AB student. Um, it's almost it's almost like a, a survivorship, a level of survivorship that is just um, extraordinary. I think each of us does have that impulse, but you really went with your impulse of how to survive. Um, and the one thing that I, I thought was perhaps the most interesting aspect was that you became a ventriloquist as your talent for the beauty pageants that you entered. You're a beautiful, beautiful girl, beautiful woman. Um, and, you, and you started to, to enter beauty pageants. I think a grandmother helped you do that, or maybe a teacher. But in any case, you found a path there. You found a way kind of out of the misery, and you found some positive reinforcement for yourself, some acknowledgement of yourself as a person. Um, and, and some compliments. I mean, you've never even experienced compliments in your life. But the ventriloquist, the ventriloquism, it gave you a voice. Did you feel you could say things that you wouldn't ordinarily say or be a funny and amusing in ways that you wouldn't ordinarily be? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I found out that you can say things with a puppet and totally get by with it even in public, <laughs> even I, I still uh, perform when I can and uh, have increased my uh, character collection over the years. But um, I, I did. Uh, I, I actually, my grandmother did put me in, in the first pageant I was ever in. It was a school beauty review, and I won. And um, 
she liked that a lot. She she thought more of it than I did, honestly. So she put me in several more, and then I had won a state competition and was going on to nationals, which required talent. So I sang, and um, I actually sang Dolly Parton's 9 to 5, and I was... I was about nine years old, or about maybe eight, eight or nine. But uh, this voice instructor had been in a crowd at one of the pageants, and he said, you know, he went to my grandmother's, I think she really has talent, and um, I'd love to work with her. And he was a very well-known voice instructor, voice coach at the time. His name was Pete Doles, and uh, Pete actually became one of those very important people in my life. Uh, my grandmother took me to a couple of lessons with him, and about my third lesson, uh, she took me and dropped me off and didn't come back. <laughs> and Pete and his wife, Rosa, actually took me in. They, they they couldn't get anyone on the phone, and that was before cell phones, and they took me in, and they made me. They, you know, stapled some of his big T-shirts on me for pajamas, and um it, it ended up being that way, my, that he was able to reach my grandmother the, the following day. But I ended up staying with Pete and Rosa a lot. And I would sit in the room with Pete as he would give voice lessons throughout the day to different people. And it became very important to me to please him. And I wanted to know every mm-hmm. song that everyone sang. <laughs> I wanted to know all of the lyrics. And um, Pete went away. I I noticed that Pete was getting sick after a couple of years. He was losing his voice, and he had been a very large, muscular, broad-built fellow with this amazing, wonderful, deep voice. His voice began to fade, and his body also began to fade. And that was during the height of, um, the initial height of HIV. And Mm -hmm. Pete finally just went away. He didn't show up, and no one told me anything. I was 11 years old, and, you know, I got really upset when they asked me, why did he just leave? Why did he? And, and my grandmother was um, quite harsh most of the time, and she just said, he's dead. He died. And mm-hmm. I, I had no idea. It was years later before I found out that he was affected by HIV and died from complications of that. But um, after he died, it's kind of uh-huh. like I lost my voice. And I stopped winning right. talent competitions, and I thought, what's happening? And then one day I heard myself sing, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's what happened. And mm-hmm. I, I figured I had seen a ventriloquist, and I was like, she can't sing either, but she's doing it through a puppet, and she wins everything. So that's what got me into ventriloquism. But sitting in front of the mirror, um, I'll, I'll preface that, there were many times, especially at my grandmother's house, that I would be locked in my room. And I couldn't come out for anything, even the bathroom on many occasions. And I propped a mirror up on my wall, and I would sit in the floor in front of the mirror just trying to perfect ventriloquism skills and trying to make the puppet move right and trying to make my lips not move and trying all my ABCs with the ventriloquism. And that, I realized today, was a major distraction for me. I I, I think I found outlets just like education. I had rather study and put my mind on school instead of focusing on what was really going on in my life. I had rather try to become a wonderful <laughs> ventriloquist other than, you know, focus on 
what's going on outside my bedroom door and the fact that I'm locked in my room. And it, those were major outlets for me. So now I try to um, encourage children, especially and adults even, who are newly diagnosed, to you know find these outlets and put your energy into something good instead of mm-hmm. constantly focusing on the negative. You know, it's also it's 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 an outlet, but it's also um, it's also a way to speak, and it's a way to be emboldened to speak when you might be muted by your circumstances. Um, I I just think the fact that you were constantly unconsciously looking for the positive, and that this random chain of events led you to ventriloquism. I mean, it gives you a lot of faith somehow in the universe that you are being led sometimes through a series of coincidences to something that will actually practically save your life. I mean, being able to establish your worth um, in the, in the pageants and with this talent and gaining a voice um, in Mississippi, Northeast Mississippi, where blacks and LGBTQ people were absolutely banned, barred, looked down upon, and some of these were also your champions. We've got to take a commercial break right now, but we'll come back and speak more with Angela Howard, author of Sin Child, about the meaning of champions and healers in life. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Angela Howard, author of Sin Child, a memoir. It is a page-turner. It is a book that is cleanly written. There is one harrowing event after another, but laced with also what I've now learned from this conversation, Angela, the aspect of you looking for the good, looking for the positive, and somehow finding it in this environment. Um, We just spoke about um, racism in the South for a moment uh, during the break, and I wonder if you'd just share a story about your uh, firsthand experience with racism in the South, as if you needed anything else to develop resilience uh, about, but it, it too happened to you firsthand. Give us some insight into that. Sure. Um, my mother uh, was married 11 times. Three of her husbands were black, and that was very taboo in, in the South, especially Northeast Mississippi. Uh, my first cousin, who was my best friend, her mother also had a relationship with, with a black individual. And um, 
we were actually targeted by the KKK. Most people think that KKK only, the Ku Klux Klan, only targets black individuals. However, we were, I was at my cousin's house. Uh, my cousin, myself, her younger brother, we were all, all three very blonde-haired, little pale-skinned children. And her mother, um, mm-hmm. we were at home one night, and we woke up to her mom screaming at us, you know, get, get the brother and get in the closet. Do not come out unless I tell you to. Yet I was observant of what was happening outside. Outside was lit up by red fire. They had set crosses on fire, literally, in the backyard, and the fire had gone to the grass. So it started a grass fire. So I was looking out into the sea of fire, you know, just thinking, oh, my goodness, we're going to burn. We are going to burn right here. And at the time, I was about 10 years old. So that was a traumatic event in itself that I will never forget. Um, The Ku Klux Klan was very active and very um, anti-black, anti-LGBTQ, and, you know, people in my life, uh, modeling coaches that I was able to have access to through other people I lived with, uh, not through my family, but um, others who I stayed with who helped me tremendously in my life. Um, The black individuals and the gay individuals actually were my saviors. They, I had, my family was very racist. They had always looked down upon black people, looked down upon gay people, and talked very negatively about them. Yet what I was seeing was, wow, they are the ones who are so nice to me and so good to me. I actually um, lived in the projects, what we we called the projects, and I think it's, um, I don't know what it's referred to now. I know that's not the appropriate term in today's age, but then they were called a project, and we were the only white family. My mom, my brother, sister, and myself, we were the only white family living there. My mother would lock me out of the house during the day, whether it was winter, summer, whatever, most days, she would put me out, and I would be outside all day. I had long blonde hair, and I can remember it in the summer especially. It would just string around my face. But there were black individuals who would take me in, bathe me, put their own children's clothes on me while they would wash mine. They would feed me. There was one individual who took me in a lot. And I never Mm -hmm. even remember her name, which was horrible. But when I went to work at the psychiatric facility, I'd worked there several months. And this one particular lady who worked there as um, a psychiatric tech she asked me, she wanted to know all about my history, where I was from, and I was I had always been very reluctant to tell anyone where I was from and especially who my family uh was because they they held quite the name for themselves, not in a good way. So she finally right. figured it out one day and she said, Your mother was Lisa Allred, which was my mother's maiden name. And with all of her mm-hmm. marriages, not many people knew or remembered that name. But I thought, oh, my goodness, right. she knows who I am. And it ended up, she said, she said, Miss Angie, do you remember me? And I said, I, you know, you look familiar. And she said, you live in the projects. She said, I used to take you in and feed you. And it was unbelievable. And it's 
started a friendship that is strong to this very day. It's the most heartwarming aspect of the book that there were people who reached out, maybe people who had compassion for you because of their own sense of having been repressed or their own sense of being outsiders, uh, and and just people who sustained you, who, you know, that, that's life-giving, what she did. And I think that, you know, then for you to become a healer yourself, um, maybe it's not surprising, Angela, that with this wound, your desire to share your compassion with others, do you feel that it's a direct result of, of your experience? Absolutely, I do. Um, I, in sometime in my 20s, even before I was diagnosed with PTSD, um, I, you know, I, I still had a bitterness to me, a little bit of a bitterness, and I, I you know, was angry a lot just in general. Um, I was not a violent person or anything like that. It was just feelings I had within myself. And it finally occurred to me, hey, you know, you can do one of two things. You can keep just letting this eat away at you and eat away with you at you. And you can be angry with others or you can be angry at yourself. Or you can search for the good in things and try to just focus on the good and, and toss the bad. So I started just thinking, okay, I want to take everything that really, really bothers me on a daily basis, no matter how bad it is, and I want to say what good came from this. So I found, I would mm-hmm. think, okay, so if I had not gone through this, I, maybe my children would have. Maybe I wouldn't have been protective of my children like I am. Um, so maybe that made me a better mother. So I would say, okay, this made me a better mother, so I'm going to. I'm going to take that, and I'm going to throw the rest away. Or, you know, this made me a better nurse, so now I'm going to take that, and I'm going to throw the rest away. This made me mm-hmm. achieve my goal of becoming a nurse, so take that, throw the bad away. And I started to try to my life like that. It's definitely hard to do that on a daily basis, but that's how I still try to live my life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely the way forward. It's the way to save yourself from, as you say, being eaten by anger. Um, and it's not easy. It's a daily challenge. It, it involves a daily workout, a daily routine of checking your thoughts and checking in with yourself. You are the mother of two daughters. Was it healing for you as well to become a mother and to open your heart to the love that would be natural for a mother to feel for a daughter or daughters? Um, It it was very enlightening. Um, I had twin daughters, and they were premature. I actually had a a pretty rough pregnancy and um, was in the hospital a couple of weeks before they were born, and I went into congestive heart failure. And I actually coded Mm -hmm. before they were born. And um, then they were born, like I said, as preemies. They were two and three pounds, and they were in the NICU. And just seeing them in that vulnerable little state, it it made me realize, oh, my goodness, I am responsible for these two precious little beings. And um, I was in an abusive marriage, 
And the, mm-hmm. the older they got, I mean, one even one and two, where they were, you know, would grab around my leg and not let go, and they would cry and they would vomit. And um, they actually are the ones that pushed me to go through nursing school. I, I had always wanted to be a nurse. And when I got in high school, or when I was a high schooler, and I started talking about college, and I, I want to be a nurse, I, I knew I wanted to be a nurse. My family, my mother, my grandmother, they said, oh, you can't be a nurse. You have to be smart to be a nurse. So I was always told, you can't be a nurse. You can't go to college because you are not smart enough. And I was the the going to be the first person to graduate high school in my family, and, and that was an issue. Um, my family uh, accused me, my mother especially, she would always say, you just think you are better than us. And it, I know hmm. now, I always wondered why she thought that. But I know now that it wasn't that I thought I was better than anyone. Um, I just wanted better for myself. I had aspirations for myself that most of my family didn't. Um, And I did that. But my daughters, I finally decided one day, you know, I can't support two children on minimum wage and I have no formal education. So they pushed me to go to nursing school at two years old. And it was for them that I fought every time I I would think, oh, goodness, I can't get through another day of of nursing school. I would think, nope, you got to do it. You've got to do it for them. And what do you know? I made it through, and um, I've had a very, very successful and wonderful career that has led me so much further than I I ever could have expected or anticipated. And I owe a lot of that to my two daughters. It's an amazing story, one that I would recommend, Sin Child. There are a lot of mysteries left to unravel, Angela Howard, author. I just know that there's, you know, there are a lot of reasons to read this book. It's not like everything is neat and tidy. There is still the penetrating question of why. Um, but, you know, we, you went there. You went and you delved into this. The great part that's come out of it is your motherhood, your nursing career, your ability to give back, and this foundation, the PTSD-ACED Foundation. Can you give us... Um, I mean, and just going to, we've got a couple minutes left. So, for to give listeners an idea, for four or more ACEs, those are adverse childhood experiences. It's approximately the level of lung disease found in an adult smoker. These are the physical manifestations. The level of intravenous drug abuse and the number of suicides. 11 times greater than the normal population, suicide attempts 14 times greater. For children who have experienced things like this and have PTSD as a result, to give you an idea of how insidious it is, much four times more likely to have intercourse by the time of 15, more likely to develop depression, liver disease. This is from Dr. Robert Block, who you acknowledged uh, at the American Academy of Pediatrics. And 67% of the population have at least one ACE, leading to all of these social problems at risk, health behaviors, social, emotional, cognitive impairment. And what do you want to leave us with in terms of the seriousness of this issue, Angela, and also how to reach you, how to reach the foundation? Is this a much greater issue yes. than we're even aware of now? 
It, it really is. And, um, you know, there uh, a national study was done two years ago, and 34.8 million children in the United States are affected today. That is a lot of children. Incarceration, 74% of people with four or more ACEs are incarcerated. 52% of incarcerated people have six or more ACEs. Four or more ACEs. Um, lead you to an increase of uh, at risk for seven out of ten leading causes of death, including heart disease, stroke, suicide, Alzheimer's, cancer, and diabetes. So it's it's very important. There is a lot of good information on our website. Uh, the website address is ptsdaced.org. Our phone number is 901-633-0638, or you can email us at info at ptsdaced.org. That uh, email is also a hyperlink on our webpage. And there's, there's a really compelling 12-minute video under the newsroom tab. It's labeled Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris video. It's a TED Talk that she did that is been one of the most profound 12 minutes I've spent in my life. She explains mm -hmm. this in such great and broken down detail. Um, it, it's a wonderful video to watch, and uh, yes, she, she's so, tremendously yeah. smart. Yes, she bears witness, and so does your book, uh, Sin Child. It absolutely is a mirror of what many people are experiencing in darkness. Thank you so much, Angela Howard, for being with us on Dropping In. And Thank you, I Diane. am so glad. We are very thankful for you sharing so much of yourself and your family for urging you on, your daughters specifically. Thanks very much to our engineers, Matt Weisner and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Cialino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe and find your compassion. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.